So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And there is the word of God. It is infallible, inerrant, and may we receive it in the power of the Holy Spirit as we hear it. Going to be a strange question. But most of us are going to say yes to it. Do you love what God loves? Do you love what God loves? Oftentimes when we are expressing the labors of our faith, we, we can in some ways impose what we love in place of what God loves and believe that God loves what we are doing because we love what we are doing. But that's a backwards approach to it. Do you love what God loves? Now there's a lot that I could pull from Scripture, but in thinking on that question, uh, I want to draw three things very quickly about what we know for certain God loves. And first and foremost, preeminently, God the Father loves His Son. (laughs) And there's where we begin, isn't it? God loves His Son. What did He say when His Son took up that role and served himself up to be baptized and in order to fulfill that righteousness of God on behalf of His people. And God from heaven spoke uh, so clearly and, and I wonder so powerfully, what would it be like to be there to hear God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you love what God loves? Do you love His Son? I hope you're saying yes. We'll get more into that, but it begins there. Uh, We also know Micah 7, and as we have sung, 
We know God loves to show mercy. (laughs) And that is most amazing. That is one of the things I believe we as fallen people really struggle with. To show mercy. And to show mercy without requiring from us uh, some uh, some labor, some work, some doing other than that faith in Christ. You read Micah 7 and God delights in mercy. And then He was saying this even as He was dealing with a disobedient and uh, an, an idolatrous people that He had set His love upon and they turned away from Him. And yet He's even expressing to those who were disobedient to Him, I delight in mercy. Come and see how merciful I can be to you. And when you tie that back with the first love, you understand why God loves mercy. Because He loves His Son. And He has His Son who was ready from before the foundation of the world to come into this world and offer Himself up on our behalf so that God's mercy could flow to us in abounding measure. He loves mercy. And and bringing it into our subject matter and the church and this series that we've been doing on the church, we know God loves His church. He says in Psalm 87, and I could pull many more verses to this end, but he says in Psalm 87, though his foundation is in the holy mountains, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And, and that word Zion and O city of God, that's the church. And he's looking at the church even from the Old Testament as he looks upon Israel as a nation and again as, as fallen and inconsistent and unfaithful they were to God. He still steps back and he says, I love my church more than the dwellings of Jacob. And think on that phrase. We know one of the things to to think of whenever we hear that word Jacob, that name Jacob in the Psalms and we're singing about Jacob and the God of Jacob. What's so significant about that? I'll remind you again. As what has God said of Jacob? Jacob I have loved. Jacob I have loved. And when He calls His people Jacob, what He's saying is, do you know I love you? But here he reminds us of something more. That despite all of the dwellings of Jacob, and we might liken it this way, despite all of the households that are represented when you leave this place and you go back to your homes and you go into the world, God loves you and He loves your households. But you know what He says here? I love my people when they gather together as my church. More. I love the gates of Zion more than all your individual dwellings. And when he says glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, who's speaking those glorious things? It's God (laughs) from heaven. And the angels are hearing this and God is just saying, do you see how glorious this bride is that I'm giving to my son? Come back to that question. 
Do you love what God loves? Do you love the church? You know, nowadays uh, we hear, I'm just going to put this out there again, I told you it would come again. We hear a lot of Christians who say, well, you know, you don't need the church to be a Christian. And, and church isn't as important as my fellowship groups or whatever. But when you think on God's word, how inconsistent such a statement is, isn't it? Because if God is loving the church more than our individual homes, what are we to be loving? That's the, the import of that. And I recognize that there are people who have been hurt by the church. We are this side of heaven, uh, fallible, erring people. And when we come together, we recognize, as we've already confessed in our worship before God, that we are yet sinners struggling in this life to live obediently to the Lord. And we, even as the church, and we, even as elders, will get it wrong in the way that we care for God's people. And sometimes we will hurt the sheep. Those things have been problems within the church. Sometimes we deal with sin in our midst in a wrong way and people are hurt and it's hard at those times to love the church, isn't it? But does God still love the church? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Because He knows what He's doing with us in, in all of our foibles and errors. But those are things that God loves. And you hear it. You hear it from Scripture. God's love for His church has been demonstrated. The church of God which He purchased with the blood of His Son. You can say, how much has God loved the church? He offered up His Son for her. That through His death, you could be His purchased possession. His treasure. Jesus has loved the church. Titus 2. Jesus who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people. It's, it's something to hear how Scripture presents the church as the treasure of God. And when you think of that in respect of how he describes the kingdom of God for us as a great treasure hidden in a field which we are earnest to find, well, God calls us this treasure that he has taken to himself. Paul here is speaking about the church in 1 Corinthians 3. And he brings us in verses 16 to 17 to understand who we are as the church. When he speaks here about us being the temple of God, he's not speaking as he does in chapter 6 about us individually. The word you, do you not know that you have been purchased, that you are a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 is individual. It's singular. But here he's looking at the church and when he says, do you not know that you, collectively, plural, all of you, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Know this. This is one of the great images that is given to us of what the church is and how we can understand the nature of the church. But he brings us in verse 17 
to deal with those who would defile the temple of God. God will destroy him. That word defile and that word destroy are the same word in the original language. It's just we interpreted them a little differently. But God will defile the one who defiles his temple. It's quite the warning to come to our ears in respect of how we view the church and how we love the church. This past week, there was a lot of things that came across my desk through news articles and social media. And I noticed that through these three particular issues that really met me this past week that there is a lot of defiling going on in the church. If I could summarize them under three headings in keeping with our text, and again, very quickly as, as we consider this, one of the ways that the church is defiled is through worldliness. And I don't know if we always see how worldliness does creep in, but worldliness is simply this, this uh, way in which the church, rather than following God's Word clearly set out for us about how we are to both worship Him and serve Him as His church, we strive to be more and more like the world and we try to get our wisdom and, and our manners for serving and worshiping God from the world. And it was interesting... I'm working some things here together in this, but uh, as far as worldliness goes, how many of you uh, heard uh, about Disney this past week? Yeah. Disney uh, fully embraced wokeism. Uh, They have a CEO who uh, announced uh, an agenda of removing uh, words like ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And everything's going to be uh, gender neutral. And it's with an intent of now turning things around within the Disney world where a minimum 50% of its characters are going to be of the LGBTQ and racial minorities. And, And Christian Twitter and Christian social media was alive with, what do you think we should be doing in response to this? And the Christian's response was twofold. And I noticed this pattern. Their first response is, we need a boycott. Not an interesting response. Maybe some of you agree. But when I was reading that, all I could think of is, isn't that what Simon thought Jesus should have done to Mary Magdalene? Boycott her. Now, I'm not saying go and give all your money to Disney. Uh, it is a tourist trap. <laughs> but the second one really astounded me. Not a few. Let's create our own artistic fictional characters to disciple our children. What? <laughs> that, that's your response? Worldliness defiles the church when we try to be like the world and we don't trust what God has given to us. The second one, and again, this is, this is empire building. Celebrity empire building. Paul deals with, well, I should have taken you there. Paul deals with the wisdom of this world in verse 19, doesn't he? The wisdom of this world is foolishness. Why would you go there? But he also deals with this celebrity empire building. Don't you understand that Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they're not the foundation of the church. 
Why do you make them the foundation of the church? And this is something that defiles the church. How many of you heard this past week what happened to Hillsong? The Hillsong Church Empire. This is the headline, the actual headline. Hillsong Church Empire collapses. And most of it is due to a bad foundation. Uh, Brian Houston resigned. He's the founder of Hillsong. He resigned. There's criminal charges. There's uh, issues of toxic leadership and sexual scandals and all of this that has infiltrated it. And as some of you don't know Hillsong or Brian Houston, uh, he is credited, and again, here's a quote, for bringing the hipster movement into the church. I had that, well, when we were at our church, uh, uh, church planting um, time, um, we heard hipster, and my wife asked, what in the world is hipster? And the guy who was leading the church assessment, church planting assessment center, the guy who was leading it said, well, just think skinny jeans. <laughs> and, and, you know, whatever it means, that's, that's what it was uh, extolled for. What was the church's response? And this is all bearing on the issue of the church being the temple of God. The church's response is, let's disassociate. And again, quote, so that our brand isn't hurt. Isn't that interesting language? We're separating from Hillsong and going at our own because we will do better on our own. That's the church's response. But it drew me that that's not uncommon. How many people go to a church because of the preacher and when the preacher leaves or something happens within his ministry and he fails, that people then leave the church? How many times has that happened? And like Paul says here, at the very beginning of this, do you realize how carnal that is? When you put a man on a pedestal and then walk away because that pedestal breaks. (laughs) And of course, the last thing that also defiles and destroys the church, not just worldliness, not celebrity empire building, but it's immorality. Sexual immorality, to be blunt. You go to chapters 5 and 6. Paul spends those chapters dealing with that. And it's been sad to know men who have failed, who ministers of churches who have failed in this. But the statistic of sexual immorality goes much deeper. Do you know it's estimated within the church, a normal church congregation, that at least 30% of the guys are engaged in pornography. But it's hidden, isn't it? We don't see it and we think individually that this is my, my own private sin. And we don't estimate how that defiles the church. We have churches and denominations wrestling with how to deal with the LGBTQ community. I learned a word this past week because, and this is all out in the open, and I'm, I'm using names here because it's all out there. If you haven't read it, it's still easy to find. But, of course, the Presbyterian Church in America 
is wrestling and has been wrestling for the last several years with this whole issue of how do we uh, deal with the LGBT community that is within our churches and what do we deal with ordained men who struggle with some of these issues. And the word that I learned this past week was latitudinarian. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> Latitudinarian. I didn't realize it, but that is actually a 17th century word. It's what was used to describe those in the Church of England who believed that adhering to specific doctrine, liturgy, and polity would be harmful to the church. Think on that. <laughs> that if we adhere to doctrine, liturgy, polity, that's going to be more harmful than loosing the reins and and allowing us to be latitudinarian in our approach to people and issues. Isn't that strange? And the church's handling of sexual immorality has not, never really been all that good. I mean, you're, you're reading of news and news and news and news of how much cover-up has gone on and victim-shaming, other issues that are with it. It isn't just the, the matters with the LGBTQ community. It's just how we approach this immorality. We don't usually deal with it very well. And you know, in all of this, and why I spent some time in just going over this, in all of this, the casualty, the casualty in all of this isn't just loss of a few people, or maybe denominationally loss of a few churches. The casualty in all of this is God's Word, and sound doctrine, and His Gospel. It is so interesting that none of the responses actually steps back and says, do you know what needs to come out now more than ever? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be pointing the church to Christ. (laughs) And we need to be presenting both His mercy and the way forward from His Word that we deal with these defilements in the church in a biblical, godly way that exalts God and not simply uh, covering our shame. The casualty is Christ and God's holiness. And that's why what you see Paul doing here as as he comes to teach us something about what is the church The church is the temple of God. He asks that question in verse 16. As as those things that I've set before you, Paul's dealing with every one of those things in this letter to the church. But he stops for a moment in dealing with those things that are defiling the church. And he stops and he asks this question, Do you not know? Do you know this? That you are the temple of God. Do you know that? This church whom you are in fellowship with, this community of God's people that He by His Spirit has drawn together to be His lampstand in this city, do you not realize that you are the temple of God? And what does He say at the end of verse 17? Which temple 
You are. The church is God's temple. And understanding that we of course have to go to the Old Testament to understand a little more clearly what that means. But do you know what it is for the church to be God's temple? The first thing that he brings us to here is that the church is God's temple has Jesus as its foundation. My friends, that's preeminent. It's not a man. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. It's not Peter. (laughs) It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You back up to verse 11. What does he say there? There is no other foundation that anyone can lay than that which is laid. Jesus Christ. And when you understand that and you connect that to understanding the church as the temple, you look to the Old Testament and you see the temple that was erected in the very heart of the nation of Israel. That Old Testament temple was holy. Why? Because of who it represented. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself made that connection. John 2.21, when He was talking to people about why He cleansed the temple of all those money changers and all of those uh, uh, breeders who brought in their wares to sell at the Passover feast. He cleansed the temple and people came to Him and said, what authority do you have to do this? We were making a lot of money. That's the parentheses behind their their challenge. (laughs) And he said, he said, I will destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it. And of course, they were confused. Such a response seems strange. But he went on to say, as John records there, he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking of himself. And last week, as we talked about the church being the body of Christ, understanding this continued dynamic as the church were that new temple of God. And what made the old temple the temple of God? Three things. Three things made that temple the temple of God. First, His abiding presence. God Himself. The glory of God. That dark cloud of God that showed itself to Israel. Wouldn't that have been amazing to see? How many of you want to see God? Do you know, the Old Testament Israel saw God in various forms and fashions. I mean, God did things for Israel that we can only imagine with our minds what it would have looked like. What would it have been to have that pillar of cloud by day and it turning into a pillar of fire at night, being with us, following us, leading us, and knowing that's the glory of God that's with us. And then when the temple was built, you go to 1 Kings 8 and you you can read it there. But that very glory of God, that dark cloud of God came and filled the temple that it chased everybody out and the people saw it. But again, it was all pointing to Christ. We by faith know and believe God is abiding in this place. His glory is upon us because we are that new temple in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hear John 1.14 talking about how the Word that was with God and the Word that was God, that was with God from the beginning, how that Word became flesh and what? 
and dwelt amongst us. And some of you, just for a little Greek uh, exposition, that word dwelt is the word tabernacle. He dwelt among us. And what we have with us as the temple of God is the abiding glory of God in Christ Jesus. We, you might say, well, I have that individually. Yes, but corporately, it's greater. And is not the incarnate Christ much more impressive than a cloud? Christ is with us. And what made the temple of God, the temple of God was the gospel ministry that was conducted in the temple in Israel. You read Leviticus. It's all about God saying, I will provide for you forgiveness and cleansing from all your sins through the sacrifice of the Lamb. I will lay all of your sins upon these beasts. Their blood will be shed and it will be a demonstration to you of what Christ does for us when He offers Himself up in our place unto death so that God's mercy, His forgiving, cleansing mercy can come and wash over you. That gospel ministry that meets you today, I hope just even as we've sung and even as I've just expressed it so so simply there, I hope it's your in your heart you're saying, yes, praise God. My sins are forgiven. And every week we come back to this place. Even as in the Old Testament, Israel had to continually come back to the temple. Every week we come back together as God's people to hear that message because we need to hear it again. Why? Because we sinned last week. And how many of us are sluggish to repentance? And we come back here and we're in the presence of God and our sins begin to come out as we experience the holiness of our God dwelling with us. And we say, oh God, oh God, forgive me. And God, as I've already said, He delights in mercy. He loves mercy. And that's, that's the thing. What makes the temple the temple of God is we are, we are experiencing the mercy of God to forgive us again, to cleanse us again, to, as I often say, to wash our feet another time and to ready us for this coming week. How much more has the blood of Christ sealed the cleansing, healing graces of forgiveness and acceptance? It's amazing, isn't it? God still loves me. Again this week, God loves me. (laughs) And He will. Because He's so faithful. And what made the temple the temple of God was the priestly intercession Next to the Ark of the Covenant, do you know what was the most significant item in that temple? I like to tell people that whenever you think of those three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus when He was born, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, do you know there's only one article, one piece of furniture in the Old Testament temple that identified with all three of those gifts? It was the altar of incense where the frankincense was poured into the seltzer and it was burned before it. It was an ark that uh, was covered in gold and anointed with myrrh and the incense 
was burned. And it was the offering of the prayers of the high priest for the people of God that as the the incense went up to God and the priest was praying, God, have mercy on your people. He would pray and intercede for His people that God would smell the sweet aroma of the incense and He would delight in His mercy to say, I have, I have. And that priestly intercession, my friends, happens even here. Even as Jesus called the temple in His day the house of prayer for the nations. What do you think He was talking about? That it represented His work as our great high priest ministering in the Holy of Holies, ministering in the very presence of God, making intercession for us. He ever lives for this purpose so that we are saved to the uttermost. The temple. And that's the church. You see, going back to that statement again, for the Christian to say, well, it's okay to miss church today. I don't need the church to be a Christian. They're wrong. (laughs) They're very wrong. Because this is the temple of God here on earth. And the question when he says, do you not know that you are the temple? Do you not realize the foundation of Jesus Christ on which we stand as His temple? You see, it's not about a building. (laughs) Now, we could be meeting in a barn. When we come together as God's people, that foundation of Christ is what makes us His temple. And the question that meets us really is, how are you building on this foundation? Realizing this is the nature of the church. that Realizing that we are holy, not because of what we're doing. We are holy because of Christ. We are the temple of God. And what we must beware of in our own hearts is guarding that we do not defile her because God will defile us. I encourage you to read 2 Chronicles 29. It's perhaps amongst one of the most favorite chapters of the Old Testament. But Hezekiah takes over the kingship of Judah after his father Ahaz had violently desecrated the temple of God. And Judah is surrounded by an enemy more mighty in number and power than he had. They're bankrupt as a nation. They're they're fearful of the nations that are around them, Hezekiah comes to the throne and the first thing that he does is what? You know, you look at all of the decline that is going on in the church in North America and let's admit it, it's there. Don't be blind. The church in America has a lot to answer for. And I mean North America, not just the U.S. (laughs) I'm talking Canada as well. What did Ahaz do when he looked at all that surrounded him and all of the problems that he had? It says there in 2 Chronicles 29, in the first day of the first month of his reign, he went and he opened the doors of the temple that his father had sealed shut. And then he said to the priests and the Levites, cleanse this temple of the filth that is in it. And it took them two weeks to cleanse just the area around the temple. 
and another two weeks to cleanse the inside of the temple. His father had shut the doors. He had removed the gospel. He stopped the incense. They had lost prayer. He brought into the temple idolatry. And Hezekiah recognized the result. This is why the wrath of the Lord has come upon Judah. Chapter 29, verse 8. Because God will defile those who defile His temple. It's a warning that meets us. It's a warning that challenges all of us individually. How have I built upon Christ? Have I just simply carried on in my life knowing Jesus is my friend, He's my Savior, I can go on with business? Have we realized that our faith in the Lord has brought us into His church and we are a holy temple to Him? And how I live my life reflects Christ. The second thing, and just very quickly, comes with the second point that he makes in verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You see, my friends, when we, when we look at this verse, what we realize is that the congregation is not just simply an assembled group of believers with common ideals. It is a holy gathering of believers who share in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in that, when we realize that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, that there is a greater glory and presence of God, when we realize that, it makes it so much more personal Because the Lord Jesus said that in the sending of His Spirit and in the pouring out of His Spirit upon the church, it was so that the Father and the Lord Jesus Himself could come and make their home with us. John 14, 23. How many of you have at at certain celebration times in the year have had family that come and stay with you? And your heart is filled with joy and gladness knowing that they're coming for this week or for the, for the Christmas celebration or something of that sort. And you're just excited. They're going to come and they're going to live with you for a while. Maybe some of you have family that <laughs> you're thinking, oh, I really got to work up for this. But the Lord Jesus said, I'm sending the Spirit so that the Father and I can come and make our home with you. Isn't that precious? God wants to live with us. (laughs) And that's the essence of the temple. My name is here. If the people of God want to know where they can go and be with their God, it's here. Because God wants to live with you. God's purpose is to make you His church so that you in the power of the Spirit, in the presence of the Spirit, so that you, His church, can be the temple on the earth. And so that you, as His church, can be a light to this world. We live in a dark world. Spiritually, this is a dark place. But He has lifted up His church. He has, in Matthew 5, He has made it a city that is set on a hill where its light can't be hidden. 
This is what God is doing with us. So that you can give light to all. And understanding that the Holy Spirit dwells in us as a church. It's for that purpose that the light and glory of Christ can shine. And that the world, the people around us can say, Where is God? There He is. Let's go and find Him. The light of the world. A lampstand. And that's because the Spirit dwells with us. And with that comes that obligation. Let your light shine so that people, seeing your good works, may glorify the Father. This is who we are as Christ's church. A temple. What destroys this temple is worldliness and bad foundation and immorality. But what allows the light to shine is when His gospel, His glory, His priestly intercession are seen and experienced and people can say, look, God is with them. Let's be the temple of God. Let's love what God loves. His church. Let's pray.